Hey, welcome. Welcome. It's good to be back. Welcome. How you doing there, Ray? What's happening? What's happening? Pretty good, Nick. Pretty good. I'm excited. Hard times on film. I'm excited to get back to it. Yeah, I'm excited too. Yeah, so let's not waste any time today. Yeah. Death Hunt, 1981, just after Cabo Blanco and right before Death Wish 2, just placing that in, in Bronson's uh, career trajectory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was made by a Hong Kong-based production company, but it was filmed in Canada. And um, I, you know what? When I first watched it, I thought, man, this has got some Canadian actors in it, and it has some Canadian kind of production values that I was sort of down on. But then I realized that it wasn't at all. <laughs> no. And then I watched it to the end. I'm like, yeah, no, uh, th- this got no money from Canada for sure. <laughs> it does have a number of Canadian actors, though. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. One guy notably whose name is oh Maury. Uh, what's his oh, name? Chaken. Maury yeah. Chaken. Yeah, from Whale Music. Yeah, for those of you familiar with uh, made-for-TV Canadian movies, you'll <laughs> recognize him instantly. I think he was in um, what was that uh, Street Legal or uh, Heat? Night, 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 night Heat, heat. maybe. Yeah, yeah. He was in Night Heat. I'm sure. You know, though, he was in like Dances with Wolves and My Cousin Vinny. Like, he's got a pretty long... There's a lot of actors in this film. Maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later. But one of the strengths of the movie, like on paper, certainly, like you look at it, you're like, wow. Like, there's a lot of accomplished actors in this film. Most of all, the two stars, Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson in the same movie again. For sure. Anyway... It's your turn to do a synopsis of this film in 60 seconds. Already, eh? Yeah, and there's this, maybe it's just a spoiler alert. Like, if you haven't seen this movie and you're the kind of person that gets all bent out of shape about finding out what happens, um, maybe do pause and watch the movie and then come on back. Okay, so for the uninitiated, uh, this is the whole... We're going to try to get the whole movie in. Uh, so you don't have to pause and watch. You can pause and watch uh, by all means, but you don't have to because we're going to give you everything you need to know about the movie in the next uh 60 seconds here we go on your mark get set start uh, we meet mysterious stranger albert johnson when he interrupts a dog fight in the yukon where he saves a dog by buying it from its resentful owner uh, hazel apparently shamed by the ordeal of turning a profit on his half-dead dog hazel and some dog fight buddies decide to track johnson down and kill him But having fortified himself with all the ammunition in town, Johnson is ready for them. And after they kill the dog instead of him, he kills one of them. As a result, Johnson uh, becomes known as the Mad Trapper, uh, kind of a legend of a guy who's going to kill you and steal your gold teeth up there in the north. Sergeant Millen is the grizzled RCMP veteran charged with checking out the Mad Trapper. So he and his tracker pal Sundog and some other guys uh, head out to the cabin. One of these other guys shoots first, unfortunately, even though Millen was working things out with Johnson and the whole thing blows up, literally. They dynamite Johnson's cabin, uh, but he survives and kills a constable. A chase ensues, which captures the attention of the nation, and an RCAF officer is sent to help out, and we find out that Johnson was a U.S. Special Forces in World War I. Johnson eludes the posse in the frozen north. Millen hooks up with a lady. Some other guy turns out to be the tooth-stealing trapper, and the pilot kills Sundog by mistake, then crashes his plane. Johnson uh, swaps clothes with some other guy who gets shot in the face, and everyone thinks he's Johnson except Millen, who has respect for Johnson in the end and lets him get away across the mountains. The end. 
uh, I thought it would be kind of amusing if at the end of your 60 seconds, I gave, you know, how they do it. If you're, if you're speaking, someone will give you a, you've seen debates. They'll give you a little bell or something when there's five seconds, 10 seconds left. Anyway, it didn't come together that way. And in fact, that was almost as long as the movie itself. So that was about a minute and a half. Really? You went over by about 30 there, but you know what? I, uh, I really thought that you, you paid close attention to the movie, obviously, mm. because you captured all the detail that was important for sure. So. I tried to, I tried to keep it, I tried to keep it tight. I, I, there's not a lot of fat to trim in this movie, though. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a difference of opinion, but we'll get in more <laughs> into the conversation in a little while. What's more important than that, though, the most important thing is Bronson's entrance. So, yeah. every uh, every film that of his, the tone is set and his, the story inside the story is all dictated right at the outset from uh, Charles's uh, entrance on screen. So, can you tell us a little bit about about that this time around? I think we see like parts of of the man before you see the man. And so your 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 interest is peaked like, oh, there there's some power suggested by like a shot of a boot you know, just a, a gun strapped across the back. But then we do see his face and it's 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 Bronson. I really thought this was effective because he, you're right. He comes in and there's tension building up because it's a dog fight. Yeah. And there's all these really grizzled, ugly men and they're waving money around. And uh, he just walks into the middle of that fray. And then the first thing you see, like all their reactions, but then you see his eyes and he just stares at all, all the men down and they're all armed and he doesn't seem to care. No, it, it's really funny. The setup for the whole, the, like basically the whole premise uh, turns on, on him buying this dog, which is really strange. Like he decides to save the dog's life. He buys the dog. He way overpays for the dog. I forget what he offers the guy at first, like a hundred bucks. And the guy's like a hundred bucks. And he's wait, 200 like when he sees him pull out this bankroll he he ups the price and and bronson gives him another hundred and you'd think the guy would consider that a bit of a steal yeah especially in uh, 1931 like i think a hundred dollars was a pretty good chunk of change back in yeah, the day. 200 200 dollars so he but it, but instead the guy's immediately super resentful and commits himself to tracking this guy and undoing this injustice. He feels he's that he's suffered by by selling his dog to this guy. I don't quite understand the motivation of that guy, apart from perhaps being embarrassed. Hazel, yeah, and I think that Hazel's a complicated character, but I have to say this is one of the one of the holes in the movie for me. That's just a. It's I just feel like this Hazel character. There's nothing justifiable, and it doesn't seem crazy enough to make it seem like this is something a group of men would just decide to do based on Hazel's uh, hurt feelings. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But anyway, uh, Bronson's entrance is is pretty, pretty great, pretty uh, maj- majestic. Majestic, you could say. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and so he looks great. He looks fantastic in the movie. Uh, he's about, I think he's close to 60 when this was filmed. He's in wicked shape still, and he looked great. He has a very modest mustache. <laughs> Not too ostentatious. And a short haircut, which yeah. I always I appreciate. He had a bit of the same kind of dirty dozen hairdo. A little bit. And he, he says, like, well, before we get too far off his entrance, we get, like, his first line. Um dogs have dead i'm buying them 
So, so from there, we're, we're introduced to this character. Uh, well, I don't think we know his name at this point as uh, Albert Johnson. But uh, so describe for us this character. What is this guy all about? Yeah, Bronson's character is not that uh, dissimilar to other characters he's played in other movies. It's got a bit of a Western vibe, this movie. It's set up in the, in the far north, like in the Yukon kind of in a western town a lot of the action happens in a town that's like very much wild west and um he's uh, he's just an exceptional man uh, like he often is in his films he's uh, got imposing physical strength fearlessness he's clearly got some skills he's special forces from world war one which <laughs> i don't know if that makes him you know like steven seagal or something but uh, I don't know what, what they were doing in World War One in terms of hand-to-hand combat and this kind of stuff, but he had some skills for sure. I guess he's a trapper. He has a big wad of cash. I don't know where he got that from. You don't really find out. He's clearly been to this area before, though he seems like he's like an older generation coming back to uh, restake his, his claim. But yeah, there's really no backstory for him beyond the fact that he was special forces in World War One. He knows how to use a gun. Yeah, really, there isn't that many differences between this character and, and some other characters that he plays, uh, particularly through the 70s. Like, I didn't do it, but if you counted how many lines Bronson speaks in this whole movie, like, how many would you say it is? Oh, this is the thing about it. Okay, well, let's get into this just for a minute. I, I think that it had the potential to be one of those exceptional roles for him where, yeah, he, he doesn't... Bronson's strengths i mean he can deliver great lines he's uh, he's a accomplished and skilled actor but i think that his strength is the power he has on screen without saying anything like even just the beginning when he's his eyes are on, like the extreme close-up there's almost no dialogue for him and no. it's, it works so, it's so well for him all of the lines are so economical where he comes in and i wished that they had done the same for others because there's a lot of fat they could have trimmed in this film and, and then added, I think just even more shots of Bronson running through the, the, the woods in the snow with snowshoes on. Like I would have watched another 20 minutes of that, yeah. you know, without him saying anything, it's just yeah. so much tension and it's, it's an imposing and incredible, but they threw in a lot of stuff that was maybe unnecessary, which we'll, we'll get more into in a few minutes, I think. I, to- I totally agree. Like, now that I'm thinking about the choices they make, they have Bronson there. He's sitting in his trailer while they're shooting these scenes with, su- like, some lesser actors and subplots that are totally unnecessary. They should have just said, okay, we're going to have a huge montage of him building this cabin. Like, I would watch Bronson build that cabin for 15 minutes. Like you yeah, say, like right? How did he build the chimney? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's this beautiful stone chimney. <laughs> anyway, yeah. every time we do these uh, these podcasts, we get to a point later in the in the podcast where we, we talk about our, our big ideas, like the substance of yeah. the movie. And my big idea with this movie is that I'm just going to tell you now because we're into it. Okay, we're cutting. We're cutting to to Nick's big idea right now. Yeah, we should talk a little bit about the music and direction too. But um, I'm just going to skip to my big idea, which is that it was it, there's clearly a formula at play that was unnecessary and, and problematic. Reading more about it, the writers uh, they they got their big start, you know, writing for Kojak and Starsky and Hutch, and it has that sort of early '80s 
you know, splice together a team style writing. <laughs> it's, um, it's disappointing because I, you know, I would even say learning more about the other actors in the film, there's some really strong actors that just got nothing, you know, they had nothing to work with. And it probably yeah. it seemed to me too, that, you know, the director in this, um, he's pretty inexperienced. A lot did a lot of editing, not a lot of directing. And it felt kind of like everybody was just party. I they bet you they were just up there partying and just, you know, it was probably a lot of, <laughs> a lot of blow, a lot of hard liquor, and just like there wasn't a lot of um, restraint. And so like here, I'm just going to give you a quick list here. Like, you know, there's Lee Marvin, Carl Weathers, who's right between Rocky two and three, right? He's five years, six years before Predator, which I think is his zenith. Andrew Stevens is the Mountie. He was in 10 to, 10 to Midnight. He's not He's not a great actor, but he had no. some skill. He has some presence on screen. Angie Dickinson, she was she's somebody who is an award-winning actor. Um, she had just come out of Dress to Kill, which is like a critically acclaimed movie. Um, she was in even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which is a movie that I, I love. You know, Ed Lauder. I read something, sorry, I read something that she said I heard something that Angie Dickinson said about being in this movie. She said that like she saw the script and there was basically no part, but she just really wanted to work with Lee Marvin again. I heard she wanted, she just wanted to go to Banff. Or yeah, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Or she, she, she wanted, yeah. <laughs> well, they had been in one of their big movies together earlier, but uh, yeah, she, she recognized that she's going to be in like three scenes and there's no arc to her character. There's really nothing to do other than hang out with Lee for a bit. Yeah. And it really felt like that was spliced into the movie. It's like, Oh, we need, we need a woman in the movie, right? Mm -hmm. we, need a, we need at least one white pretty woman in the movie so that there's some that that box gets checked right it didn't feel necessary it didn't help anything it didn't develop marvin's character any more than it had already been developed like i mean there's some sense in, in this that it's like it's a spectacle like we're watching this sort of train wreck of a document of that experience they all had up in the canadian north but it's yeah. you know as far as a film goes that tells that story and really capitalizes on the like the great strength it has is the actors and I, and, and the, the story itself could have been like, it was, the story was manipulated, but the choices they, they made in manipulating it didn't add anything. No, I think things like the, like Angie Dickinson's character, you either had to cut it out or expand it. Like I can see the, I can see the value in bringing her in. We have Marvin's characters kind of this old grizzly vet he doesn't really have much direction he's just it seems like he's up there maybe he's gonna drink himself to death kind of thing and so to bring this this figure in there like there's a story there to tell but you're not gonna do it in three scenes like she's not just gonna show up and then you know go to bed with lee and then it's all good yeah and it doesn't add anything to his character like he's really the star of the movie as much as, Br mm -hmm. as bronson is kind of the focal point it's lee marvin who's the is the star you know and uh, he's he, the story hinges on his activities and his relationships and the and and ultimately at the end him leaving bronson alone right and so having her show up it just falls short like it should have been you're right like had they had a, a few more lines maybe maybe if they had contrived some better dynamic for them like some other activities for them other than just getting drunk and, and banging you know <laughs> they dance and like they dance first. yeah they dance yeah you know 
I don't know, man. I, then there's also, you know, uh, and Amy Marie George, who's like, she plays this indigenous woman who has just like, no, she talks in like a first in nation's language. And there's just a lot of blunt ham fisted, very poorly executed efforts at trying to create some sort of dynamic. Um, anyway, I don't want to get too down on it because the truth is in spite of all that, in spite of all that, we're here to celebrate. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. because I think, you know, there's enough of Bronson and of Marvin's, uh, yeah. like they, they're, they're so great, uh, in their way that they carry this, this very flawed vehicle. Like, I think Marvin is a brilliant in this, to be honest. Like, you're absolutely right. This is a Lee Marvin movie, uh, also featuring Charles Bronson in a way. And I hadn't seen it in a, so long that I didn't remember that. But Marvin is such a, like, he is such a good actor in this. Like, despite where the writing falls short in a bunch of scenes, there's actually some pretty sharp lines in some other scenes that Marvin gets uh that are really cool some great some great moments for him yeah he really does carry it and, and with a lot of those other actors especially in the town he's able to uh create a role out of nothing which is pretty impressive hell that guy that was my strongest dog you were fighting that dog hazel and from what i hear your strongest dog was a hair breath away from being bait that's a damn lie i got witnesses What do you got there? Oh, it's a two-way radio, sir. The newest thing. Yeah, kids always got something new that don't work. Oh, this one works. I was trained in communications. This mountie here says that man should be brought up for trial. Now, what are you going to do, Edgar? I'm going to close my eyes and pray you disappear. Hmm. Never had much luck praying. These guys look rough, like... Marvin looks hard, man. Like he has the his he has the look of a person who's had a who's done a lot of drinking in his life. He looks really he fit this role really well, but I don't think that they had to spend much on the makeup. No, well, M Marvin uh, would uh, he'd only do two movies, no, three movies after this, two theatrical releases, although one I don't think saw the light of day in North America. And then his ultimate, his final movie would be uh, Delta Force. Lee Marvin's only alive for another like five years after this movie. I don't think he was in the best health around this time. Although he doesn't seem, he doesn't seem ill in the film or anything, but he seems like a weathered individual. Well, another guy who, you know, fought in World War II and had a pretty hard hard existence right there's that whole generation which we've talked about in the past that bronson falls into um they they wear it like they look they don't look like we look we're almost the no. same age as these as these guys you know in the 70s but we don't look it <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i guess that's probably because we live in canada and there's free health care and some dental benefits when you're a kid um so uh, do you want to talk about the music at all? Did you have any anything strike you? I found that there was very little of it, which is another part that I really appreciated. Yeah, this is uh, this is a funny one. The, the music is done by a guy named Gerald Immel. I think I'm, I, I actually have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. Gerald Immel, Gerald with two R's. Um, and this is a guy um, who mostly did TV work. And I think that comes across a bit in the music like you're saying it's pretty sparse and when it does appear 
there's a lot of very simple, just kind of mood building single notes will just kind of ring out in the background we get a bit of a theme here and there like at the end when Bronson's crossing the mountains and stuff but there's really not a lot to write home about and this guy really didn't do a lot else theatrically there are some gems in his career though like I do like to go digging through the IMDB to see if there's anything else that would suit the podcast that the these people might have touched and so he does, like, he does a lot of D Dallas and a lot of Knott's Landing. He does do the score for Megaforce, and, and, which is no, no slouch. And he also does a couple episodes of Logan's Run, the TV series. Not, not the feature film, but the TV series, which I'm, a, which I'm a big fan of. But just like you said, very simple, a lot of tension. And uh, I liked that there was so much silence. Yeah, no, they used the silence well. Like, I, I don't think this movie had a massive budget. I bet there probably wasn't, you know, they couldn't afford to get Jerry Goldsmith to come do this or something like that. Well, you know, that's interesting. It's interesting you'd say that because it was a $10 million budget. And apparently there was a there was talk of Robert Aldrich coming to do this film. And he, he obviously, you'll remember, was from uh, The Dirty Dozen very successful director and i would love to have seen what it might have turned into in his hands to be honest with you but the budget was a was a big point of tension for him and he backed out and they got um peter hunt who's you know no, known for for directing his his other big movie is on her majesty's secret service which is a bond movie obviously you know uh raise a huge james bond fan so i'm sure you could speak to that, mm -hmm. that film specifically but um yeah, the other thing that I really found noteworthy about the, the budget is they spent 10 million, they made five, and they had talks with Telly Savalas and with um, Peter Falk, Peter Falk, about playing the Lee Marvin character. And in the end, they, they got, they, they did, went with oh. Marvin. And I wondered if, if those guys wanted more money somehow. And, they, and Marvin, at this point in his career, maybe just was easier to get for them budget wise the mind reels like i want to see all of those movies like i want to have death hunt with lee marvin because I, I really did enjoy this movie but i want to see death hunt with telly Savalas, and i really want to see death hunt with peter falk that would be that would be incredible directed by robert aldridge with with peter falk as as the mountie yeah, yeah. funny you mentioned uh like majesties these days if you listen to any james bond podcasts or anything it usually is the top of people's lists now for a long time after it was made you know um it was sort of considered a bit of the joke bond like kind of the worst one but it's really appreciated in its value in people's minds in the years since so now people usually put it right at the top like a lot of big james bond guys will say it's the the best one so he gets a ton of respect for that movie it's a really good Bond movie, but I don't see a lot of the magic in that movie on display in this movie necessarily. I don't know how much 10 million bucks was in, in 81. Yeah. I don't know either. And it's a lot of its location and uh, the stars. I won't say though, that the action was poorly executed. Certainly there's some scenes in this movie that are really great. And he did, an, mm -hmm. he did a really, I think as good a job as anybody might have for and there's no cgi like this is stunts right? no Blow, explosions and stunts and there's one other thing to say about him is that he will direct bronson again that's another right. movie that got hamstrung by budget this time like in a big way and that's assassination 
Yeah, I haven't watched Assassination in such a long time, and now that oh, now that I know that, well, well, we're, we're going to talk about it eventually. But it's a movie. We'll talk about it then. But it's a movie where the budget got cut, like in the middle of shooting it, and you can really tell that that happens. So I don't know if Peter Hunt ever got his moment to shine with Bronson as a as a star. Well, uh, listen, man, I uh, I kind of spilled my guts in terms of what my big idea about the movie was. What so? What's your what was your big takeaway? The substance, 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 according to according to Ray. So, I'm looking at Bronson's career first of all, and where this sits in his career, and that really got me thinking about what uh, like some interesting things about this movie. So, 1981. This movie really is the the last of a phase of Bronson movies. Right? We're always talking about the different ages of Bronson. He he goes through sort of like the golden years in the early part of the 70s where he's making arguably his best movies. And then there's sort of like a part 2 to that where he does a whole string of movies that are still real real 70s movies, some really good movies, but they weren't big hits. He does some, he tried some independently financed movies and sort of his star power is a bit on the wane. And this is the last one of those movies. And after this movie, it's just a hard pivot to the new Bronson. Him walking into the mountains at the end of Death Hunt is, is kind of like a farewell to that. That Bronson walks off into the sunset and a, and the new Bronson emerges one year later in Death Wish 2. And then there's an entire decade of a, basically a, a whole new career in a whole new style of film, which is much sleazier and much harder edged and much more 80s. Like the 70s turned into the 80s pretty quickly. You get this, this tiny little transition period of like two years and you go from like, all those stereotypical 70s things like into the kind of Madonna 80s. And there's this huge shift where you had people who were popular and successful in the 70s trying to transition into whatever was coming next. Tons of people did weird things. Like lots of 70s artists made really weird albums in 1980 and 81. Lots of 70s movie stars made really strange films in 80 and 81. There's not much of the 80s in this movie. Like really this is a bit of a, like that's like the dying gasp of a kind of 70s movie and in being that to me it's also a little bit like it's like albert johnson like it's a man out of time movie like it's no surprise to me that this wasn't really a hit like westerns were not big mountain men movies were not like this was like the last of a kind of subgenre of mountain men movies <laughs> and the movie can't really survive the era that's coming like Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981. So you could have gone to Raiders or you could have gone to Death Hunt in the cinema next door. It's really two worlds on display in terms of the, the kinds of movies that are getting made, the level at which the action is operating. Uh, you know, you got Peter Hunt over here and you've got Steven Spielberg next door. The movie's a little bit like Bronson's character. It's kind of on the run but the, the times are catching up with it. Yeah, that's super interesting, man. Like even thinking about a band like the Rolling Stones and how they went from very disco 
into the eighties and suddenly you've got like undercover of the night in 1983. That's basically like, they want to sound like the clash or something from 1981, you know? Yeah. There got to be a, a cynicism and a coldness too. in some of the movies that Bronson makes later in the mid eighties, like the death wish set, it really just mines a depth of cynicism and coldness that this movie doesn't have at all. Like I, there, there are things in this film that are a huge mistake, but certainly the Bronson character and, and the Lee Marvin characters, uh, they hold up and it's, yeah, I agree with you. That's a, those are great points. And speaking of which, I want to talk just a bit about the action in the movie. What are the scenes that like were your favorite action, action shots? Well, you're said that's a softball that you're setting me up there because in this movie, this movie really turns on on basically a single shot in my estimation, and that is after uh, after they blow up his cabin. Uh, he and he's he's prepared for them by by the, just sort of the way he's built it and like hollowing out this big part in the ground where he can lay and survive, and then out of the flaming wreckage of his log cabin Bronson just kind of like rises like a phoenix and starts opening fire (laughs) and it is really something to behold and uh like I think you had said we were talking earlier like it really is this is worth the price of admission in this one shot I think I like that I I like that shot a lot I really liked when he when he jumped off the cliff and landed in the tree this is a year before first blood came out and that was so first blood in that that shot and and to the fact that he's like a he's being chased by this mob of of uh, of quasi law enforcement <laughs> is a lot like first blood yeah okay so let's just shift gears here the co-stars are something that i just want to touch again on because there's one person in particular that i thought was pretty interesting uh and he's he's also a product of that time so there's there's a few actors that really come out of that era that were in almost everything. And this is a guy named William Sanderson, who I always think of as Larry from um, Newhart. Remember, hi, I'm Larry, and this is my brother, Daryl, and my other brother, Daryl. <laughs> so he's in it, and he's in everything. Like, he was in Fletch. He's in The Lone Wolf McQuaid. Oh, yeah. Blade Runner. He's in The Coal Miner's Daughter. Like, He's just a flavor of that whole decade and he's still acting. I think he's in some stuff even in the last couple of years, but yeah, there's a few other actors that are noteworthy in the movie for sure. Ed Lauder, who's like the bad guy, the Hazel who, you know, is basically the, the whole reason this story um, unfolds. He's a great straight man. He's in uh, Breakheart Pass with Bronson. He was in the White Buffalo with Bronson and he's in both the original Longest Yard and the remake Longest Yard. There's a few things about that uh, role that were pretty weird. He does a lot of inexplicable stuff, but he doesn't seem crazy enough to be doing those things. But yeah, he it, like when he kisses the young Mountie, that was a bit like, yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's just a weird, it's a weird choice, right? It's a weird choice. They're just, I guess they're trying to display the cabin fever and the, and repressed kind of feelings or whatever it is like the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe they're way more progressive that I'm giving them credit for. And they're like, no, this is like a LGBTQ person who's trying to make the best of living in the woods. And he finds the Mountie attractive. Like that's fully possible. Yeah, no, but it, I, it didn't come across that way in the film. I thought that they made it very dark, very dark. Well, there's a whole bunch of elements of that, right? Like this is so northerly. The rules don't apply. 
Millen is really like, don't pay attention to the rules. He says to the, you know, the new Mountie and just keep your head down and keep killing each other. You know, they have the relationship that they have in the cabin. And there's all these elements where they're trying to show us living part of this life kind of drives everybody to the breaking point a bit. And I think that's one of those elements, but they, they don't really pull those elements off all that well. I, I think you're right. I don't think it, it doesn't all come together in some sort of immersive way where you can kind of feel the claustrophobia of the place or something. It just all seems like weird, random stuff that happens. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's a episode of the love boat. And it's, all, <laughs> this, it's way over the top. But listen, you know, um, you are uh, taking it upon yourself to read the book version of as many of these movies as you as you can get your hands on. Did you find this? Did you find this book? And what was it called? And and how was it if you found it? You're about to be backed into Bronson's corner. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing about this is that this is a true story. Um, well. The title card flashes. This is based on a true story, right? And uh, I read one article online just about how they probably should have taken that off. They probably not should not have left that on because they take some extreme liberties with the story. Like saying it was inspired maybe by a true story might be a little more uh, reasonable. But uh, when when I was looking for like what book to have a look at. There's a book that basically came out the same year or, or just before. And so I was curious if they were at all related. And so I, I picked up a book called The Mad Trapper by Rudy Weeb. And it's also a fictionalization of the Mad Trapper story. So you've got uh, one fictionalization coming out in book form and one in movie form, like in the span of the same year. The book and the movie read very, very similar to one another. They could have thrown uh, like a like a movie cover on this book and put out an edition, and it wouldn't be so dissimilar that you would wouldn't believe it. It's basically the same story. What's funny about the choices that they made is like they kind of the middle of the movie is all stuff that really happened. They did blow up his cabin. He did hide underneath it and survive. <laughs> The major thing they changed was the beginning and the end. In real life, Albert Johnson, to this day, they don't know who he is. It's almost like the Canadian Jack the Ripper or something in Canadian history. He's, his body's been exhumed and they've done DNA testing on it. Like as late as a few years ago, like 2014 or something, they dug up Albert Johnson in real life. Yeah, and there were all these theories about who he was, like people have laid claim to him. It was my uncle, or it was this guy from Nova Scotia or something, or this guy from Ireland. I heard that like part of his dong is in a uh, in a jar in a jar in a in an Alaskan bar, and you can get uh, weird tequila shots with uh, Albert Johnson's Johnson. <laughs> I knew that his apparently his snowshoes are in like an RCMP museum you can visit in like Edmonton. I didn't I I had no idea of the whereabouts of his dong though. You heard it here first. But but here's the thing is that they decided in writing this movie to completely change the motivation of for finding him, which seems like a really strange choice to me. So in real life, this guy shows up and they think he starts messing with people's traps. 
and the trappers in the area are getting upset. And so that is the impetus in real life for Millen being sent to go just talk to him and say, hey, are you messing with people's traps? So I guess they decided that wasn't sexy enough for the movie. So they invented that whole character with his dog. So when you're talking about that character not being so believable, that might be part of it. Like he's just invented out of nothing. Like let's, let's give Johnson some sympathetic, like he'll save a dog. Uh, but then the guy will be mad at him and right so they sort of do that to to reflect on johnson's character so just to wrap up the the whole book slash real life thing the other thing they change obviously i think is the ending because in the movie both millen and johnson live uh and in real life both millen and johnson die so johnson she kills millen and then he is later taken out after having sort of traversed these mountains that no one had ever done on foot before, which is sort of like this legendary thing he does, which is not something they even include in the movie, which is another weird choice to take out something so dramatic, although maybe hard to film. I don't know. You can't go back in time to change these things, but sometimes you wish you could go and remix a, a, an album that could have been great, that has great songs, but just never got the production treatment it should have. Sometimes you wish you could go back and take those actors and, uh, and reshoot this movie with a whole bunch more scenes of Bronson traversing that mountain and, and getting through. Yeah, You know, it would have been so cool. But listen, we got to talk a little bit about some of the reviews that are available online for this film. Because oh, did you did you find some? I got a couple. So you, we, oh, try good, to, we try good. to we try to get one good one, one bad one. Here's the good one. It's called 10 out of 10 superb movie from July 20, 2002 uh, from someone named KMKMB. It says, well, folks, I seen the movie and found it to be excellent. The scenery is great. And the final climax, super. In my opinion, it is a, quote, must-see, unquote, for, quote, Bronson, unquote, and, quote, Marvin, and, unquote, <laughs> fans alike. Uh, for I guess for Bronson and Marvin, fans alike. Scenery, the quote, yeah. Canadian, unquote, North is excellent. I give the movie an, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of yeah. quotes. Uh, this guy, Cam, Cam, whatever, is not wrong, though. Like, for, like... I really, really enjoy, like I said earlier, Marvin throughout. I find him captivating every time he's on screen in this. And Bronson, obviously, although he's given a little less to do. Uh, and the scenery is great. So, uh, yeah, good review. Well, here's the bad one. So it's a three out of ten. This is by Vost Vostov. And this is December 7th, 2008. It says, enticing hunt, yet not that deadly. <laughs> so it's quite it's quite long. I'll just, I'll just read a few of the parts here the production team had a very powerful true story to build on but they just tacked bronson and marvin in a loose adaptation and felt content with it the biggest flaw of all is that there's hardly a death hunt taking place the whole picture fumbles with geographical continuity aerial shots of abrupt snowy slopes contrast with the ground shots where actors happen to run on a mostly flat soil with a little <laughs> snow most of the time yeah that's actually true that's a good point. <laughs> So it, it goes on quite a bit, but the end of it is eventually it's a poor rendition of a fantastic true story only because the guys involved took a pedestrian path to a death hunt in the Arctic wilderness. The R-rated bullet impacts or the wasteful Angie Dickinson cameo are further evidence of a cheap shots oriented production. This guy's basically saying this person is basically saying what I said. So, but I enjoyed it a lot more yeah. than, than Vostafif did. So. He makes some funny points, but it just reminded me how this movie was originally meant to be titled Arctic Rampage, 
then they changed the title obviously to feed into some uh like what bronson was known for already with death wish one but i think arctic rampage is even a less appropriate name i'm i'm glad they changed it even in the cheap way they did because there's not i don't really think there's much of a rampage no and to be fair i'm not even i'm not even convinced that's actually in the arctic i think it's still below the tree line yeah. but anyway you know one thing we also do in this uh in this podcast is uh, we do a, a rating and i i try to come up with some sort of uh theme from the film that we use as our rating system and this time i'm going to use gold teeth which is uh oh good it's a bit of a theme through the movie and those of you who watch the movie you'll know what i'm talking about so uh Ray, how many gold teeth out of 10, man? Out of 10 gold teeth? You know what? I feel like we might have dwelled on the negative a little bit in this podcast. Um, but I did enjoy but I did enjoy this movie, and I think more than I thought I was going to. I don't know why my expectations were low, maybe for just where it features in Bronson's career and and maybe some things I'd heard about it, but I'm gonna give this seven gold teeth. Out of ten, that's pretty good. That's pretty close to me too. I, I would, I would give it like an eight or nine just for the for Bronson. I think that his work in this film was great, but yeah, the film itself, I, I I'm gonna give it a six and a half, maybe seven. I, I'll give it a seven. A half a two. You can't. I don't know if you can give a half a two. I watched it three times in the last month, and I enjoyed it every single time. So there's, <laughs> you got to be realistic. Okay, what's next? What are yeah. we gonna What are we gonna uh, delve into in the next podcast? It's my turn to pick. It is, yeah. I chose Death Hunt, and I'm really glad I did. So, what do you think? You want to go in back in time, ahead in time? I think we're gonna go. I think we're gonna go a little bit ahead in time. I think we're gonna jump into the, the a little bit of sleazy Bronson, which we haven't not have not touched on. Uh, so, uh, say goodbye to old Bronson as he heads off into the snowy mountains um and say hello i think to the evil that men do that's a movie i've not watched since the mid to late 80s when i was a little kid i had that poster on my wall like where i found this poster for sale and i had the evil that men do poster for years so yeah okay this is great i look forward to to doing this with you ray thanks so much this has been a lot of fun folks if you haven't seen it go out and watch death hunt it's worth the time we hope you enjoyed the podcast today and we'll talk to you again pretty soon hard times on film, times on film. this is hard times on film Sergeant Edgar Millen? Unfortunately. I'm looking on your face. Are you Sergeant Edgar Millen? Good whiskey or sour piss. I'm looking on your face. Good whiskey and 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 good whiskey.